Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I want to share something extremely briefly before I introduce uh, my dear friend and partner in this project, Reverend James Collins. And I share it somewhat hesitatingly because it is, it could be delicate because the topics that we're addressing are delicate, but I have so trusted the way we've honored in the meetings leading up to this night, the candor and the honest sharing and this space to be, um, to try words out and try things out that I'm going to trust that this group that is gathered together tonight is equally open uh, to leaning in and to trying. And for those of you who are going to be around at the Temple Bethlehem community for Yom Kippur, this is an extremely miniature preview of what I might say then. Last week, the night after one of the meetings that we were gathering together to plan this night, I had an extremely vivid dream. And I don't always dream vividly. And I certainly don't always remember them. And in this dream, with no elaboration or exaggeration, I walked by a mirror and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw myself as a black man. And it was a shocking moment because I'm not a black man. I never have been. And in the dream, I was watching myself see myself with skin that no longer brought with it some of the privilege with which I was born. And I saw myself imagining what it might be like to not be a white man, but a black man in our society, in our culture. And what I think I hear my psyche saying to me is that at the very least, even if you can't solve all of societal, society's ills, it's hard to figure out which march to march on and which protest to protest with, that there needs to be an effort amongst all people, but certainly amongst white people to imagine what it must be like to not be who you are, but to be someone else who lives in a very different America and what it must be like to look in that mirror and see that. Part of the Yom Kippur experience, at least in a capitalistic understanding, is to imagine that the holy maternal presence of God is looking at you and holding you close on that day almost like a nursing mother holds her baby and seeing you exactly as you are with no preconceived notions, no biases and no judgment. Yom Kippur is a day to be seen by the Holy One. And we hope that this event tonight and all of those that come from it are days that challenge us to see what we may not yet have seen and to be vulnerable enough to be seen by others who've never seen us in that way. And I'm at the very beginning of this particular journey in my life amongst many journeys. And I'm honored to be doing it with all of you. And I'm especially honored to be doing it with a dear friend, James Collins, whom I met originally as a protector, as a defender, as a guardian, Temple Beth Am and our sacred community. And now I turn the mantle over to this conversation as a colleague, Reverend James F. Collins, 
the founder of Exusia Evangelical Outreach Ministries, will share a word of blessing before we go into the rest of the panel. I want to say good evening to everybody tonight, especially to my friends and family from the Temple Bethlehem community, who I was with for almost 10 and a half years. I certainly miss each and every one of your smiling faces, as well as being in the community. But fortunately, we are just down the street from you. I want to thank Rabbi Clickfell for reaching out and saying his communication. It is definitely a blessing to be a part of this program tonight. And as we looked at the vision for the goals and objectives, Psalms 133 and 1 comes up. And it reads, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. While we are looking at the television, the internet, and maybe even in our own communities, the messages that we're seeing is a message of division. But our encouragement tonight is to turn your attention back to this sacred conversation. A few weeks ago, we had a serious conversation where we brought up the issues on race and all the issues that divide us. Tonight, we want to refocus our attention on the sacred conversation where the people of God, people of faith, can come together, discuss those issues that we see in the scripture so that we can observe what's good, what's pleasant, and to see brothers and sisters live together in unity because we know that's what God has set aside for us to do. Tonight, we've been blessed by a panel that will discuss a lot of these issues. We have as our moderator tonight, Rabbi Cantor Hillary Choyney. I'm going to turn the program over to her so that she can conduct it in the way that she sees fit. And at some point, she's going to give you instructions on how we will proceed this evening. But thank you all for coming out tonight and welcome to everyone from every community. Good evening, everyone. How good, how pleasant it is indeed, Reverend James, for us to be together. I want to say first and foremost that we really do want this to be a space that's filled with voices. And because Zoom is one of those spaces in which it's hard to feel it being filled with voices, I want to start with the encouragement of you asking questions. So here's how we're going to have you doing that tonight. I want to encourage any questions that come up for you that you might want to ask the panelists this evening for you to send them to the hosts, which is what's enabled here on Zoom tonight. You can send them to me, to our program director at Temple Betham, Leah Mandelbaum, or to Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. They're the ones, we're the ones who should be listed there in the chat box. I'll see them coming up, but I won't be paying attention to them because in a moment I'm turning my attention to our esteemed panelists. So I want to encourage you to send those questions in and after we spend about 40 minutes in conversation, listening to the conversation of our panelists, we'll be going into breakout rooms and I'll spend that time looking at those questions, curating them, and then bringing them to our panelists when we come back together for about 15 or so minutes of discussion. That way you have a sense of what our program is for this evening. So start thinking, start asking. We want to hear your voices as a part of this evening. I want to introduce the panel to you, and I'd like to do that by having them introduce themselves. I'm going to call on them each in just a moment, and I want to do that by way of inviting them to introduce themselves in a very particular way. 
I once learned from Reverend uh, Dr. Najuma Pollard-Smith that diplomacy is often an exercise of a slow and patient drip. Tonight, we are engaging in the continuation of a sacred conversation and also the start of a sacred conversation. It is neither the beginning nor will it be the end. So we are asking our panelists to be lean and candid and accountable to the space that they, you, take up in this astoundingly robust table. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask each of you in order as I call on you to introduce yourself for 90 seconds. That's it. And I'm gonna stop you at those 90 seconds with the following. Your name, the sacred community or communities that you call home, and one very short piece of holy scripture that sets the tone for our conversation. I'm going to start with Rabbi Sarah Bassin. Hi, everybody. I'm Rabbi Sarah Bassin with Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills. And uh, the sacred text that I'm bringing to mind tonight comes from the Mishnah, when the rabbis were fundamentally reimagining what their world was going to look like after the destruction of the temple. And in one text, Mishnah Hagiga, they set out with a kind of self-awareness of what they are doing in this moment of social transformation, where the, um, the categories of law that they use, they say um, some rest very firmly on scripture, some are like a mountain suspended by a hair, and some come flying out of thin air that they create. And it's just this open endeavor of recognizing that they need to own their power and be creative and also root themselves in the past in order to forge a new pathway forward. Thank you, Rabbi Bassin. I look forward to hearing more of your words in just a few minutes. We turn now to Elder Blake. Please introduce yourself, your sacred community, and a very brief word of text. My name is Elder Charles Blake II. I serve as assistant pastor at West Angeles Church of God in Christ. We are located right on Crenshaw and Exposition, and um, I guess the text that I would be wanting to come from tonight would be, it's a um, John 17. Um, after saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. And then it goes back down to making them one as we are one, so that the world would know that you are and that is my text. Uh, my father always said that they'll forgive you for being too short, much quicker than they'll forgive you for being too long. True and in church. The, uh, true in. Uh, well, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. You were saying. Go ahead. Um, oh, it is past, the church is pastored by my father, Bishop Charles Blake, um, Senior. So I serve and assist my dad in ministry. And I want to say hello to all of the other West Angeles members who are out there tonight. Well, I'm so glad to get a bit of your wisdom and your dad's wisdom, and that wisdom is true in synagogue, in church, and on Zoom, and I thank you and look forward to hearing more from you this evening. And I want to turn now to Rabbi Dr. Arie Cohen to hear from you a little bit more about who you are, the sacred community that you represent, and a brief piece of text. Hi. Uh, good evening. Um, Thank you all for, for organizing this. My name is Aryeh Cohen. I am a professor at the American Jewish University. I'm rabbi in residence at Ben the Art Jewish Action, and I'm a member of the Stiebel community. The text that comes to mind is from uh, the Babylonian Talmud, Brachot 61a, 
it is the way it is one of the way one of the many different ways that the great sage Rabbi Akiva was remembered and this memory it was a time when the Roman Empire uh, when the Roman Empire decreed that Jews could not practice their religion they could not study or teach Torah and in response Rabbi Akiva went into the into the public square and organized people to study Torah. And he was met there by a friend of his named Papus, who said to him, Akiva, don't you know that the Romans who occupy us are forbidding us to study Torah? And Akiva said to him, Papus, they say that you are wise, but you're really not wise. If when, the, if when we study Torah, we are in danger, and Torah is our life, um, all the more so if we don't study Torah. And Akiva took the Torah and sat in the public square and taught. And in this moment, that is the text that is, that is talking to my heart. Thanks for sharing your words and your heart. And we look forward to hearing more from you in just a few minutes. And for now, we turn to Sheila Thomas. Good evening. My name is Sheila Thomas. I'm a member of Holy Name of Jesus Church in the Jefferson Park area for over 50 years, where I actually attended grammar school. And very still very active. And also a member of One LA, which is a broad-based organization of churches, synagogues, um, unions, schools. And the text that most likely comes to my mind and always every day is that we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And that's how we should, and that is our birthright. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila. Thanks for being with us. And we look forward to getting back to you. And finally, I want to turn to Gamal Palmer, a cultural community builder. Gamal, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, It's good to be with everyone this evening. I'm Gamal Palmer. I am the Senior Vice President of Leadership Development at the Jewish Federation. I'm also a Schusterman Fellow, and I'm also a person, a part of many cultural communities and identity-specific communities here in Los Angeles, nationally, whether that be a male entrepreneurs of color or in the LGBTQ community or Jews of color. And I have been um, indecisive about which text I will read, but I, I think um, since we've heard which people followed the directive of sacred text, I'm going to share... Um, a quote from Chadwick Boseman, who just passed away, who was the leading actor in uh, Black Panther. And he says that, um, he says, I think you realize how much you need to have people that love you. It's not as much about them loving you. It's about you needing to love people. And that is something that I urge all to connect into is that we have a human need and urge to love and to give love. Thank you so much, Gamal. And thank you to each of you for finding a way to introduce ourselves, uh, to introduce yourselves by way of your names and also sacred texts that speak to you and that for you speak to this moment. And I hope already even those little bits of text are already awakening questions. And if they are, I want to remind you that if you have anything to say by way of a question, that you should add those questions to the chat box and chat them to Leah Mandelbaum, 
to Rabbi Rebecca Schatz, or to me, and I'll see them later when we go to our breakout rooms. I'm going to go to a prompt now, one that I gave a heads up to our panelists to before uh, we convened this table tonight. I'm going to ask each of our panelists to share a two-minute response maximum. I know that's hard to the first part of a prompt on which we're going to build together over the next short while. What brokenness are you here to address tonight? In addition to asking you kindly to stick to our covenantal and practical need to name that brokenness in just two minutes, I want to strongly encourage each of you, each of our panelists, to speak from a place of I or me, What do I see as the brokenness that I want to address tonight? Don't worry. There's going to be more time to say more. And if you're just listening, you can think about this question for yourself as as well. I'll repeat the question once more. What do I see as the brokenness that I want to begin to address tonight? Again, I'll start at the beginning of the list of our panelists. I'll begin with Rabbi Sarah Bassan. And at the end of the two minutes, I'll come in and I'll ask, is there perhaps a last word you want to add? And if you end early, okay, so you end early. Go ahead. Um, The brokenness that I want to speak to is the story that I was raised with about what black Jewish relations um, and the history of that are. Um, And I think that the white Jewish community tells itself an oversimplified narrative, which is basically we were right there marching with Dr. King and were part of the fight. And the reason I think that narrative is broken and why it's problematic is, number one, the whole community wasn't there. It was actually a very small percentage. Number two, it erases the role of Jews of color um, in that story. And number three, there was actually a much more complicated story about the relationship between the African-American community and uh, Jewish shopkeepers and landlords in a lot of situations. And I feel like I was raised um, with an oversimplified narrative that really is has been a disservice to me in understanding um, the complexity of the relationship between black and Jewish communities and and with Jews of color internal in the Jewish community. And I think that there's a lot of work that the white Jewish community needs to do in re-examining and uh, complicating that narrative. Thanks, Rabbi Bassan. Thanks for sharing. Just a moment, we'll turn to Elder Blake to answer the same question about the brokenness that you're here to address tonight. Thank you. You keep coming to me first. (laughs) I would love to be able to hear uh, more, you know, as we go from some of the very much esteemed um, members of our panel and to at least just take this time to thank you um, over at Temple Bethlehem for having us here and to be um, a part of this. But I'm very quickly getting into my answer. I guess it's um, one brokenness, but it's, two parts of that brokenness, the psychosis um, that has come as a result of the tragedy tragedy of racism um, historically from um, my white brothers and sisters in the dominant era, the majority culture, and the the brokenness and the psychosis that has come as a result of being a victim of such a long period um, of racism and oppression. Um, almost to the point now to where it has become normal 
Um, it is one thing to where the dominant culture may have a, um, a feeling of superiority, but that in and of itself um, can be a sickness, you know, and um, me as a black man, not even knowing about it might have a, an effect, you know, um, of my own kind of psychosis as it comes down to a feeling of mistrust or a feeling of cynicism, you know, that has come about. I am completely blown away now by the amount of togetherness and unity that I have seen. Um, there were folks that stood up in the civil rights that were outside of the black race, and that made it possible for the African-Americans to make progress. You know, but at the same time, I'm seeing that kind of unity that I have um, never heard about before since um, before Nathaniel Bacon's revolution, you know, in 1675, that kind of unity and togetherness um, is something that I frankly didn't think was possible. You know, so I have to kind of sit back and take a, um, and take a second to really gather in and look at the amount of unity that we have gotten from outside of the African-American race. We've been saying this for such a very long time, but to see my white brothers and sisters standing up in such a courageous and strong fashion in the middle of all of this, it's, it's, I have to wonder why it's taken me such a long time to really understand that this is real, you know, that they actually do care about what is going on here. You know, so I guess it kind of spoke to a, um, a psychosis on both sides, you know, of the situation. And um, I guess so it's a, a double brokenness on both sides, you know, of the situation on both sides of the tragedy, you know, that I would like to see. Thank you so much. Thank you for speaking to that and to bringing up those ideas of stigma and that double narrative of, of psychosis and to your observations there. I so appreciate your sharing. And we're going to build on this question in just a few more minutes. But I'm going to move to another panelist, uh, and then we'll come back to you. And I promise you won't be first the next time, okay? <laughs> so I'll give you some people to respond to as well. We're going to move now to Rabbi Dr. Aryeh Cohen and the question of brokenness and, and turn to you. What brokenness are you here to address tonight? And again, a reminder that we're going to do this for about two minutes for each panelist. So I'm not sure that... Um... I am arrogant enough to think that we could fix anything tonight. I am open to um, trying to be vulnerable around the white supremacy that I have taken part in and the that which I grew up in not even knowing about it. Um, the, the feeling or um, the feeling that in any room I had uh, I had the ability to take space um, and the what I'm trying to do more is to follow rather than lead. Um, I'm trying to what I would, would love to start doing um, in different spaces and starting with this space is to listen rather than speak, is to hear and take in and, and follow the lead of um, African-Americans and black Jews who have been way more impacted by the racism that I have contributed to by not um, perhaps standing up and, and uh, intervening in it. Um, I think that also part of what I grew up with was the notion that, um, again, unsaid perhaps and unconscious, that the narrative of white Ashkenazi Jews was the narrative of the Jewish community, um, rather than it being a much more complicated narrative, a narrative included 
um, black Jews, all kinds of Jews of color, Mizrahi Jews, and that those narratives are equally as important and need to be forwarded and fronted in this conversation. Thank you to speaking to those themes and the humility that you're carrying in this conversation and always. And uh, we'll come back to you in just a few minutes once again. We'll turn to Sheila Thomas. Sheila, when you're ready. The brokenness I see is how we look at pro-life, that we're really concerned at pro-life at conception and that we're not concerned with it throughout um, the entire lifespan of a child, of a person. Um, We have so many broken children that we um, ignore, especially those that are in foster care, those who are being trafficked, um, that we do not value their lives and that we do not see that they are also made in the image and likeness of God. And that also that we, systemic racism also begins in the schools. Um, We've always doing book drives and things like that, but why are we doing book drives when these children are entitled to have a, a decent book about their history? And then when we went to the computers, why didn't they receive a computer just like they received books? Why didn't they receive internet access just as if they, just like they received books? I mean, I don't see where such a big um, price variation between that. So it's nice to always to be helped to help, but it's also nice for things to actually be in place because it is the right of a child to grow up with the things they need to have. And also in our community, we talk about a 40 acres and a meal that we were entitled to whatever. But however, will we be able to know how to spend that? Because in our California schools, we do not talk about how to spend money. We talk about how to borrow money. And even in today's society where we were giving the $1,200, we talked about how to put that back into society, but not necessarily how to put that back into our families for um, future growth. For So that is, to me, that is what's broken. Speaking to the wholeness of our kids seems so consonant with that text you and brought. I just hope I every- was hurt because... Sorry, please continue. Oh, no, I hope I was because my internet connection, it went. Um, no, that, that, was, yeah. that was beautiful. And I was I'm just going to say it, okay. it fits so beautifully with the text that you mm-hmm. brought about the wholeness of our kids' lives and uh, every human being being made in the image of God. So those work so beautifully hand in hand. And thank you for sharing both. And we'll come back to you. And we go now to Gamal Palmer and your views on what you're here to address in the brokenness tonight. Yes. Takni Chan, I can never say it correctly, um, says that we're here to awaken from our illusion of separateness. And I think a lot about in the work that I do and the work that others are doing, the racial justice movement around ego and our commitment to honoring our ego rather than honoring our true or full selves. And if ego is driven largely by power and racism is a power structure, then wouldn't actually interrupting this commitment to being right, to being better than, to, um, to ego be access to 
dismantling racism and increasing our, active, our, our, increasing our access to empathy and to understanding. And whether that's within communities of color or communities of color and white folk, um, I, I, I'm really here to, to break this part, this rhythm that we have, and it plays out in so many ways within our society um, uh, of, of, of this, this honoring of the ego and what it would look like for us to actually not know something to whether that is in a small interaction or whether it's in some of these larger conversations. So now that we've gotten a chance to hear some answers about brokenness, we're going to dive a little bit deeper. This is a little bit more raw work and it's made tougher by the continued work of making space for one another here. I'm going to ask you what, do each of you see as your role or your community's role in addressing that brokenness? Either the brokenness that you named, or maybe it was the brokenness that you heard described by another panelist. And second, what are you willing to sacrifice or give up to repair it? I'm going to ask that again. What do you see as your role or your community's role in addressing the brokenness that you named or that somebody else named in that last part of the session? In a minute, I'm going to do a little review of the brokennesses that I counted. And there were a lot and we didn't name all of them. What do you see as your role or your community's role in addressing it, maybe not repairing it completely? And what are you willing to sacrifice or give up to repair it? Here are some of the brokennesses that were named just now, just a few. Some of the fairy tales that we were told, some of the stigmas that are out there in our communities, the erasure of important stories, the wholeness of the lives of our kids that are not being honored, the breaking of the rhythm of ego over empathy. What do you see as your role or your community's role in addressing some of those brokennesses and what are you willing to sacrifice to repair it? This time, I'm going to start from the middle and work my way backwards through the cycle so we can give people a chance to work backwards and through. So I'm going to start with Sheila. When you're ready, take time and a deep breath. And I'm going to ask us each to start with two minutes again. And we might wind up with a little extra time if people's answers are brief, but we'll see. Go ahead. Um. The brokenness that I'm willing to work on is to look within oneself, to look within myself, um, to identify my own prejudices, um, to actually also ask my own community to look within their own, um, to spend time sometimes talking to someone that is different than me, to find the uniqueness that we are one. One of the things I enjoyed about my job is working in home health and going from the west side to the east side and finding out that how all of us are really the same with the same um, goals for us, the same goals for our children, and we all have the same um, problems. So I think mainly that what I need to work on is just looking at all the prejudices within myself. And having my community also do the same thing. 
And the sacrifice I'm willing to give it up to, to give is to be more vocal about it. <clears throat> and that's my community to say, let's have hard conversations. And in having those hard conversations, asking, our, asking my community and myself just to be better. So. Since we still have about 50 seconds left on that, mm-hmm. I'm going to push you, Sheila, by asking, okay. but lovingly, mm-hmm. lovingly. Yes. Mm-hmm. What makes that a sacrifice, being more vocal? Because um, to be more vocal about, because sometimes it's painful to admit your own, your own faults and your own thoughts. And one of my favorite things uh, we're saying is just always to be a little bit more careful of love. So sometimes when you say things, you can actually say it the wrong way. And so you have to be, so for me, I need to learn how to be more thoughtful in the way I say things and when I approach things and to be more vocal about it because it will be painful to admit uh, my own thoughts and my own thoughts. Thank you. And thank you for going with me on that. I really appreciate that vulnerability. You set a really helpful tone for some more answers. And I hope, I appreciate, I see some questions coming into the chat. I hope this is opening for folks some questions, and I hope you continue to put some questions in the chat for all of our panelists. Thank you, Sheila. We're going to move to our next panelist going up the list, Rabbi Dr. Cohen. So Rabbi Dr. Cohen, uh, you want me to, to re, uh, reframe the question or just go? go uh, no, I was, I, I'm good to go into it. I was waiting to be unmuted and then realized I could unmute myself. Oh. <laughs> now I can't hear you. You have a lot of power in this space. (laughs) There you go. Okay. So uh, what is my role in addressing the brokenness is I I was thinking when you said that, I was thinking about two things, Um, the narrower space of where I am a teacher and I teach my students and the larger space of where I am in the world. I teach rabbinical students and there's a tension there um, between wanting to teach somebody to give them to fill them up with Torah, to fill them up with, with knowledge and understanding of the world, to make them a leader, and at the same time, to figure out a way to do that so that they do not reconstruct, rehearse, recoup that notion of uh, th- that ego notion that, that um, Kamal was talking about, that uh, the fact that they have the answers, the fact that they can always lead and they should always be at the center. And how does one do that? And I think that that's one of the, the places that I'm looking to start this journey of, of fixing. And also in the world, being able to, and this is also one of, I think, a, a sacrifice, um, being able to stand in the world as somebody who can support and walk with and stand with and not have to always lead, not want to lead. Um, I mean, that's, I think, a, a great Yitzhahara of mine as a, a, you know, I, I enjoy speaking to people. I enjoy speaking front and teaching. And, and um, I think that I need to um, follow more. I need to support and walk with and not lead. Sometimes not leading is a very interesting sacrifice. And now I'm going to sit with that as a question on my own. Thank you for sharing so much, all of that. And we're going to turn now to Elder Blake, if you're ready. See, I promised you weren't going to go first on the next round. Are you you ready over there? Yes, ma'am. I was um, laughing when Dr. Rabbi Dr. Cohen 
talked about he had the power to unmute himself. <laughs> it made me think I was doing some reading, and my Jewish brothers and sisters may be able to clear up this for me, but I thought of something called Kafka's Gate um, that I was reading about earlier today when I knew that I was going to be sitting down and meeting with you. Um, but um, Brother Gamal um, said something when he spoke about um, ego and uh, part of a huge part, even along with racism that we've been dealing with in our culture is what I like to refer to as a, um, an epidemic of narcissism. Um, in the general culture, it's almost like we, um, we like to say that we worship God and we believe in God and believe in higher power, but really we, we worship ourselves and um, more than anything else. And sooner or later, it comes down to each of us having our own individual or our own group truths that we need to speak to. So a part of the brokenness that we would need to speak to, and I wouldn't know exactly where to put it in, is it a, a national psychosis or, or is it a cultural issue, but the, um, the desire that we have more than anything else to justify the way that we believe. You know, so part of looking to that brokenness and what I'm willing to sacrifice in the middle of all of that is to kind of understand that just because it's something that is, is true to me, I need to understand the, on the other hand, um, of a particular argument at any time and understand that it's, um, there's my perspective that is going on and then at the same time, there's another perspective that you all might have um, even as someone else or as another member of another community. But at the same time, we have to begin to draw a line eventually to when it comes down to this is what is right. You know, this isn't what is right. It's not all right to eat babies. You know, so we have to draw a line somewhere in the universe that says, you know, just because something is right to you doesn't mean that it is right. You know, that um, coming out of a, a general sense of national narcissism, that I am right. I am rightness is something and a brokenness that we have to get past. Um, and on the other side of that um, tragedy um, regarding racism is to let my brothers and sisters within my community know that um, just because you've lived under a certain stigma for 400 years of being less than, that God has put just as much value and beauty inside of you and genius inside of you that he has as someone else. And it doesn't have to be that God loves you too. It's just God loves you, you know, and that you are loved. And, you know, so what I need to do on that side is to, is to sacrifice the first immediately feeling that I am right, you know, and I need to be able to take it and really look at it and um, go deeper into, you know, the history of it. And uh, the other part of that is we have a general lack of history. We don't really know. We're not prone to look at, you know, what's been going on out there and what has been happening. So I'm, I'm pretty sure I've gone over my two minutes. You know, but so that was a great that was a great final thought on sacrifice. If I can just be your mirror and your echo back about being willing to sacrifice that feeling of being right, which since there are so many of us who are here in the capacity of being teachers and leaders, which mm -hmm. speaks to also Rabbi Dr. Cohen's last thoughts as well. It's very hard to sacrifice that feeling of being right and the knowing of being right, especially when you've already sacrificed so much. So thank you for leaving us with that thought and wanting more from you as well. And we're going to move to the next. When you, 
Yeah. Especially when you know you're right. <laughs> Especially when you know you're right. When you think you know that you think you know you're right. Okay. We're going to go to the next panelist and there'll be time for more, I promise. Uh, we are going to turn to, uh, to Rabbi Bassin. The word that's really operating for me right now is, uh, is defensiveness. And, and I think that what I've witnessed um, as I've been having more conversations uh, primarily with, with more and more white Jews is this real desire to be seen as um, having good intentions and doing good and being good. And that can really get in the way, I think, of actually achieving um, the introspection and the reflection that is needed in order to move this conversation forward. So, you know, I see my role in addressing this brokenness as um, creating more of a safe space for people to feel like we don't have it all right. We don't know all of the answers. We don't have all of the experience. And, and it's okay to acknowledge the moments when we've messed up. And we've misstepped and not to see racism as an identity, but as actions, right? That there are moments where I've done something racist and there are moments where I've done something anti-racist. And, you know, and, and thinking in terms of sacrifices, um, one of the things I'm really wrestling with right now is, you know, my, my husband and I have made the decision to send our kids to a Jewish day school, as they grow up. And, you know, the more I'm learning and understanding and just listening to white Jewish parents, I'm grappling with the implications of what it means for me to remove my kids from a public school system and to choose a system that offers, you know, quote unquote, Jewish values and the hypocrisy of equity and equality um, that's implied by that. So, you know, I, I don't I don't know what to do with that, but that's a vulnerability and a wrestling that is is currently there for me. And I think um, the more we can model the uncertainty that we have around our own personal decisions, the better off we're going to be in communal conversations. Implied in that question of what are you willing to sacrifice is that the answer is probably not everything. So that's okay. And I appreciate you answering the question in that way, too, because the answer cannot be everything and not all at once, at least. So thank you for answering honestly and openly. And we're going to go in a moment to Gamal and Pastor Rose, if you're still having any technical difficulties with the audio, I want to encourage you to put in the chat to either myself or any of the other hosts, your answer to this question so that I can at least read it out so I can share your words with everyone. Uh, but for now, I'm going to go to Gamal so you can answer this question as well. And then we're going to move to those breakout rooms. Elder Blake, just briefly almost um, did a side, an important sidetrack into the, the reality that there's a lack of having history amongst black folks in this country, um, that it was literally torn away. Um, language was torn away. Religion was torn away. Um, affiliation to ancestry was, was torn away. Uh, families were torn apart as we know. And so, uh, Paulo Freire, you know, talks about pedagogy of the oppressed, and that is the pedagogy of power and taking on the behaviors and the thought processes of power, and regardless of your color, because we're in a we're in a society in which um, we are assuming power based on how we know how to assume power. 
whether you're black or white or Latino, Asian, et cetera. And so with that, we need to really look at how that again plays into what has been a theme around egolessness, around compassion and the ability to access those things when what we have available to us is this pedagogy of power um, and where to send our schools, our kids to school, where not to send our kids to school. And I think that, you know, in terms of, of what the communities that I work with can do around that is to really look at that, to look at how are we assuming power within our respective communities, whether that's community, also Jews of color. And then there's the organized Jewish community, which is largely white Nazi Jews, whether that's in the black community. How do we assume power? What are the rituals and behaviors that go with that? in the thought process and how can we all dismantle that how what i can do personally to facilitate that um or what i would have to give up i would have to give up my own ways in which i um attempt to either take power or take control of a room or a conversation or even seek out um roles um so that's something that i can really look at um, within myself. And I will just say that um, Rabbi Sarah Bassin actually went first. I love your perspective that we're making choices about what we're sacrificing in every room that we walk into or what power we're taking in every room we walk into. Thank you, Gamal, for all that you added. Uh, and we're going to try to get the last word here to Pastor Rose. Let's see if we can make that work so that you can answer what brokenness you see and what you see as your role in fixing it, and what you would sacrifice. I just want to say, first of all, I'm really elated with this opportunity, and I'm sorry for the delay. But there's a, uh, a few parts of your questions that I'd like to go back on. One, because you started off with brokenness, and my uh, desire regarding brokenness, and I wouldn't define uh, the pain that I have or uh, as brokenness opposed to my concern and my desire through this, and that is that we, all faith, all races can unite and doing as old Psalms 133 and 1, you know, how good it is when brethren uh, unite together in harmony. So, and doing that, certainly we have to break the barrier that exists for as uh, some would describe as an advantage or privilege, and at the same time, while we're doing that, Pursue it in a way to where that there's not sympathy that you acknowledge, and it's just more so an empathy and an understanding of the difference that we all have. And, and, and as we move forward in doing that, I think we can make this world better. Now, I can uh, reflect back and say, yes, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, my father was uh, the subject of a, a grave injustice that eventually led to his death. Very similar to the case of Rodney King and all the other things. But that doesn't make me think that uh, this person here, because they're Caucasian or they're Mexican or Latino, that they're all black. There's bad people everywhere. Uh, but at the same time, there's God people everywhere. If you just look at the screen, you see a few. But with that in our service, if we can come together and be able to figure out a way that we can approach it without offending each other. But uh, one of the sayings I learned, uh, Rabbi, was uh, we want to work together to do good rather than work individually. 
uh, because united, united we stand. And I'm just so thankful that uh, I am a part of this. And I don't know if there's any other particular question I missed, but, but thank you, Jesus. God bless. God bless you, Pastor Rose, for many things, including your service and including your doing this in the middle of the night from Europe and finding a way to share your words and also uh, demonstrating for us what it means to be persistent and patient, which is something that each of us can all uh, use a reminder about when it comes to technology these days. So thank you. Uh, There are people out there who are planting deliberately divisive narratives. What do we do to keep those deliberately divisive narratives at the margins? What do we do to keep deliberately divisive narratives at the margins? So, so I'm going to jump in as a fan of the West Wing um, and offer uh, the line that you just don't accept the premise of the question right? That sometimes when um, there's an intention to be divisive, that engaging in that divisiveness and engaging in the baiting is a direct way to continue to further it. Um, And if you choose to have the conversations on your own terms and and start from the presumptions of um, love and compassion and connection, then it's really hard to allow yourself to be divided from somebody else. Thank you. Let's see if we can hear from one or two more panelists on this question before I move to the second of the three that I've pulled together. Can you hear me? Hello? Go for it. Um, Don't let them take control of the narrative. Um, In in our group, we talked about a gentleman named uh, Mr. Daniel Y. And who said the history of racism in our country is a history of the rich white guy telling the rich, the poor white guy that the poor black guy is after his stuff. You know, and as we begin to retake control of the narrative, when they paint a picture that says we are divided, we have to show them, you know, that we are united. And part of that does go along with the history. I don't want to re- recap exactly everything that we talked about in our paneling group, um, but in our breakout group, but we take control of the narrative. As long as you answer the question that they ask you from within their narrative, and you answer the question and answer the statement that they are making to you, you automatically, psychologically put yourself inside of their narrative. And if we come with a stronger narrative, a narrative of unity, a narrative that simply makes sense that none of us are smarter than all of us, that we are not going to make it out of here unless we make it out of here together. We can begin to combat that narrative. Beautiful. Not letting people take control of the narrative. You got some claps on that. I don't know if you saw. Maybe one that I see Dr. Cohen is unmuted. He knows how. So go for it. So uh, going back to what Sarah said of not accepting the uh, the premise of the question, I think uh, when people say that things are divisive, we have to we have to question what they mean when they say that things are divisive, just like we have to question demands for civility. Um, what we have to do is keep in mind the things that, that are important, justice, um, anti-racism, dismantling white supremacy. If the things that we're doing are characterized as divisive by other people, that should, that, that should roll off our backs. Uh, that's a meta 
that's a meta discussion which is totally irrelevant to the conversation that should be happening. Thank you to all three of you for chiming in on that. And I hope that I also did justice to the person and people who submitted the several questions that that turned into. And for this next question, we're going to go to a place that we sometimes call tachlis, technical and concrete and something that is way too big for this one conversation. But I'm just going to put it out there and we're going to play with it for a couple minutes together. What can we, so you can hear where this question came from. What can we as white Jews do to be better allies to our black brothers and sisters as they deal with systemic racism? I first of all wanted to put this question out there because I wanted you to know that it was asked tonight many, many times in the chat box. And second of all, I wanted to give the opportunity for us to begin to answer it together and to listen, even if we have to listen to the silence of not knowing what to say yet about it. What can we as white Jews do to be better allies to our black brothers and sisters as they deal with systemic racism? I'll go. Um, One is that we have to recognize that Jews are black. So when we talk about Jews, we are not only talking about Ashkenazi folk or European centric people. And the Jewish community must come to terms with this, reconcile it, embrace it, love it, support it, enjoy it. If we truly want to be a united Jewish people, and if we truly want to actually build bridges with non-Jewish community, would be my first of many pieces of advice. Hello. Can you hear me? Yep, go for it. Um, Excellent. It is one thing that I've always um, admired and respected. Um, And I guess what I'm calling about a certain segment of the Jewish community. Um, The ability to understand that even within the community, and I guess we might be talking about some of my white Jewish brothers, that even within the community, even though you all might not agree, that you all understand that there is a a unity within that community, you know, and you all, I like to think of it like you all fighting in the living room of your house within family, but as soon as you step outside of the house, you're presenting a unified front. Um, You've had to face history as a group that has been ostracized and attacked um, from all sides. So you know that ultimately you might not agree with your, you have to realize that, you know, you're not, and I make it out again, unless you make it out together, you know. And then I've understood, like, politically speaking, there are Jewish Democrats and there are Jewish Republicans. But you never forget that you all are Jewish <laughs> first. So I guess being able to kind of share the context and the ability that you all have do have to remain community to be able to protect a certain level of economic Now, it might be a little bit of idealism on my side, looking from outside of the community to say, well, I wish I had some of that for my own community. You know, so, you know, you, someone might be able to inform me because this is a time for an education for me as well as someone who is outside of the community. I'm not mad at you. I just want to know how you did it and how you've made it all of this time over the past thousand years, you know, of this kind of oppression. I'd, I'd jump in and say that um, 
I think what white Jews have to do is um, look inside, look at each other, look at our institutions, look at our history, look at our strategies for survival. The strategies for survival over many centuries have been being able to make ourselves useful to those in power so that we are protected. And that always worked for a while, and sometimes for a long while, and then it didn't work. It worked until it didn't work. The Jewish community was in Germany for a thousand years before the Holocaust. The Jewish community was in Poland for 500 years. The Jewish community was in Spain for a thousand years before the expulsion. Um, what we have to do is retrain ourselves. We train ourselves not to do that because we have to learn that now being currying favor with those in power means supporting the system of white supremacy. It means standing on the outside, not always on the inside. And we see nowadays, unfortunately, some in the Jewish community whose career is currying favor with those in power and sitting in the White House and doing things which are awful, which are which are um, creating pain and suffering for hundreds and thousands of people. Um, so I think the Jewish community has to start relearning the ideas of solidarity with other groups, solidarity with across racial lines, across ethnic lines, across religious lines, also solidarity within the Jewish community. Um, we're a unique community in the United States that is uh, not only a white, not only an Ashkenazi community, not only an Israeli community, but a, a community that spans um, many different ethnic groups within the Jewish community. But we have to figure out how to do that, how to how to take that really uncharted step away from being useful to power, away from being useful to power and reaching out across differences to other communities against power, against white supremacy and against, you know, the systemic racism from which we benefit. Thank you, Dr. Cohen and Elder Blake and Gamal. And it looks like maybe Gamal wants to add another word to this. And after he does, I want to add a word and make an invitation. And we're going to close with some songs. So Gamal, the floor is yours. And then I'll uh, grab the mic. Sure. Um, It was someone just put into a chat. It's somehow somewhere. Um, Is it not the case that whites, oppressive whites, view all Jews as non-white? I don't know if that's true or not, but I would I I mean, I that's a a somewhat of a separate conversation. Um, What I would say is, is that, you know, Jews, um, Ashkenazi Jews um, were able to come to this country in whichever means they they came here under whichever duress or opportunity and um, were absolutely ostracized when they came here. And I think that it's important for the, uh, for the organized or for the Ashkenazi Jewish community to recognize that whether you see yourself and feel yourself and know yourself as a Jewish person, your exterior has allowed you to navigate this country as a white person. And that doesn't take away from your feeling and your commitment and your love to Judaism, um, to our traditions and our rituals and community. 
And it's that part where we have to lean in and see that while the commitment and the love and the feeling is there, so is your exterior expression of, of, of who you are that is what allows certain privilege to happen and what certain power structures are allowed to take place. And also the erasure of Jews of color in the American Jewish story. Thank you for wrestling those thoughts out loud with us. I really appreciate that you didn't let us leave without thinking that out loud with us. You're right. And for bringing up the erasure of stories over and over again, both you and Rabbi Bassan raised those points and sometimes telling those stories out loud that haven't been told or haven't been told right are the most important, uncomfortable things for us to do. And I want to close with thoughts about productive discomfort together. And just a moment, I'm also going to invite Diana to come back. So Diana, get ready with some song. Several weeks ago, so many endeavors in the Temple Betham community began, um, mostly at the prodding of Rabbi Adam Kligfeld, that we make sure, make absolutely sure that we were doing something, anything, beginning something, anything. So many people in our community were pushing rightfully that we should be at least in conversation. But is conversation enough? And One of the prongs of the groups that has been working on an action-based project, which has to do with racial justice messaging, who's meeting later this evening, we got stuck. We've been in conversation for weeks and weeks and weeks. And in our stuckness, we went to Soria Kalra of 1LA. She's a lead organizer of 1LA. And Michael Becker, who's on this call or was on this call, and I, we went to her and we asked her, is it enough? (laughs) Is it enough to just be in conversation Aren't Jews supposed to be acting? Aren't we supposed to be fixing? And she said, that's the work, though. That is the work of justice. You cannot do this. You cannot do this if you don't start in holy and sacred relationship building. You can't do this unless, you're, unless you know your neighbor and you know your brothers and your sisters. You can't do this unless you start this work in deep conversation. And I am so, I'm wowed. I'm wowed from the minute that I was brought in and thank you to just be in conversation for the first time with these panelists. I wish I could spend uh, time with you every day, my new friends and neighbors, and I hope we spend so much more time with one another. And I hope that our time is not just productively uncomfortable, but very productively, very uncomfortable, and that it leads towards action. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As Diana sends us out of this meeting in song, we're going to open up the chat box in just a moment so that you can't just chat us hosts, but everyone publicly, and we're going to ask you to finish the following prompt. Leaving tonight's conversation, I am committed to, and then finish that thought. On the topic of bending the arc of of justice, I am committed to, I am committed to, and finish that thought. We're going to change this now. Finish that thought, and Diana, please bring us out, lead us out in prayer and blessing and song, and thank you all. Jehovah, he did all the throne. 
Blessing and 
Good night and shalom. Good night to everyone and thank everyone for coming out and participating. This is just the beginning. The best is yet to come. Arrivederci. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Hey, let's do this again real soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.